permit me a little speech before the speech. I'd like to acknowledge my lovely wife, Miss Carla, down here on the front row. Would you welcome her, please? This, uh, this is her first chapel for the semester. She's usually in better attendance than that. But uh, some of you know that this summer she had a couple surgeries. And the one closest to the start of our semester was a real doozy. And she's still recovering some. And I'm saying that because many of you have prayed for her. And I thank you because uh, she's the most important person on this planet to me. So bless you and thank you for your prayers. Well, the love of God drove the death of God. The love of God drove the death of God. The love of God drove the death of God. I know that many of you use social media to give a witness of your faith. You will post something on Facebook. You'll take advantage of Snapchat and Instagram. And you will do what you can do to uh, make Jesus famous. I thank you for that. Some of you will hear something in a sermon or some lecture statement that's made or you will, maybe the result of your own musings and some of your journaling, and you will tweet that out in an effort to uh, move the conversation from the mundane things of life to the master. And I thank you for doing that. But back in the day, Back in the day, previous to social media, back in the day when Terry Boland's voice was high and squeaky. <laughs> back in the day when Gary Zustiak had hair. Back in the day, really before most of your younger professors were born, <laughs> we, we had this other means of witness before social media. And it was called, at least one of the methods was called gospel tracks, the use of gospel tracks. Now, this past Thursday, I asked my mentor group, my guys, I said, how many of you know what a gospel tract is? Two of them had no clue. There are four. One sort of kind of knew, and the other one actually did know what a gospel tract was. Well, these were little pamphlets or cards that we would hand out to people as we did door-to-door -door evangelism or maybe at the mall or just trying to get people's attention about Jesus. Some of them, frankly, were a little snarky. Um, they still had the right message. It just kind of came off a little abrupt and abrasive, like, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? <laughs> well, that's good. It's just got a little garlic in it, you know. Um, or if you died tonight, what good reason would God give you for letting you into his heaven? Kind of, kind of stout. Then there were others that were just intended to do nothing else and just get your attention. Like, will there be sex in heaven? Well, that had my undivided attention, I'll tell you for sure. But anyway, um, now, now some of them were just kind of appeal to the left brain, just appeal to logic. Um, I would travel around a little bit for the school through these years, you know, and you'd, you'd go to churches and for a number of years, you would see these little racks in the foyers of church buildings with these little gospel tracks in them. And one you could always count on. 
It just was kind of a plain Jane, no thrills, no. It just was called Facts Concerning the New Testament Church by P.H. Welshimer. First Christian Church, Canton, Ohio. That was a mega church before anybody ever heard of the term. 5,000 people attending Bible school in 1950. And preachers would preach whole series of sermons just on that track and kind of lay just, just a call to the simple New Testament church as we see it described in Scripture. It kind of appealed to your left brain side. But the track that I've kept in my files through the years, the one I liked the best, was just kind of a three-by-five card shape. <laughs> I'd forgotten that a fellow student back in the 70s when I was here as a student actually did this track. My wife remembered that detail. In fact, you would know him because he taught here up until just recently. And uh, she said, I think he did that. I said, really? I didn't, I never, it came about when we were students, but so I wrote Tom Lawson. And I said, Tom, are you responsible for that track we had in school? He said, yeah, I did that. It has on one side of the card a hand Kind of like that nail you heard a little bit ago. And there's a nail in that hand and there's a board back of the hand. And the caption on the front of the card simply reads, God loves you so much, it hurts. And then you turn it over. And it's got my text for today. A text that Randy Garris shared with our faculty and staff just this last Friday. It's from Romans 5, verse 8. But God, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what I mean? The love of God drove the death of God. And I don't know. I'm just thinking that several of you in the fourth week of school probably need to hear that. It's still true that Jesus loves you and died for your sins. Maybe you've been a little overwhelmed by all this academia stuff. This isn't church camp, is it? No, no, we're serious about this stuff. And maybe you need to hear again, Jesus loves you, died for your sins. Maybe in the fourth week of school, you've already had a relationship go belly up. Jesus loves you, died for your sins. Maybe you're wondering, how in the world am I going to make that next payment for that school bill? Jesus loves you, died for your sins. Maybe amidst all your doubts and all your fears and all your anxieties and all your troubles, maybe the fourth week of school, you need to hear once again, the love of God drove the death of God. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. Pretty simple, really. I just want to pretend that Romans 5.8 is a pebble in a pool of water. We're just going to kind of throw that little verse in a pool of water and just watch the ripple effect that it has. We'll kind of start there and then just run out into the context of Romans. And then we'll get into the other Pauline literature, the other epistles of the New Testament. We'll include Revelation because that's epistolary. And we'll get into the Gospels and Acts. And before we're done, we'll say a few words about even the Old Testament. How do we see this theme of the love of God driving the death of God, just kind of pebble in a pool of water. It starts with the word, but. It's the Greek particle, de. Sometimes it just means simple transition, it's no big deal. But sometimes, 
It's almost like Allah. But, but, contrast. See, the verse previous has been talking about somebody will die for a good man. Hollywood knows this. They make movies about this stuff where a guy will be a pacifist soldier, but he'll go out into the battlefield and save his other buddies. You might die for a good man, but God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can't get away from that phrase, but God. Isn't that the story of your life? You were living your life just quite fine, and then, but God. You were planning to go to university, but God. You thought you would do this with your career, but God. And preachers preach a whole series of sermons on this. One of my favorites is Genesis 50, after Daddy Jacob dies. Joseph says to his brothers, you sold me into slavery, and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air, and we were by nature children of wrath. Oh, it doesn't get any better than this. Ephesians 2.4, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. But God, but God shows. Actually, it could be translated proves. The old version said commendeth. Some versions say demonstrate. It's the Greek word sunistemi. It means to stand with. God made his love for you stand up and be counted. Hmm. And it is his love. You know that word, agape. That benevolent goodwill that always seeks the good of the other person. It doesn't calculate what it'll get back in return. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't consider what cost it's going to be. Love that just, as Bob Benson used to say, love that just loves. And you don't have to go very far in Romans 5 to see this. You back up into verse 5, and it says that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. And then you get over to chapter 8. Who shall say anything against this? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? And then at the end of Romans 8, it's almost as if Paul, as one man put it, stood at the North Pole. <laughs> and he challenged anything in the universe. Things present, things to come. Just try to separate me from the love of God. You can't do it. But God shows his love. Oh, for. The word for, F-O-R, appears twice in that verse different Greek words. The first one means motion, direction. God directed his love toward you, for you. That while we were still sinners, now that defines our former reality. If you need a sanity check on what defines your reality now, go back and listen to Teresa's sermon from last week. Now we're not defined by people who constantly miss the mark. Now we're not defined by people who transgress the law. Now we're not defined by people who break God's heart. We are defined by something else. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. 
Now my linguistic wizard friend, Dave Fish, doesn't like me to talk about the aorist tense in terms of past. Well, I'm a linguistic idiot. And I know he's right. But my Greek teacher taught me that aorist tense means snapshot action. It's viewed not so much as past, but at least it's viewed at the moment as completed. Here's my point. Take all your anxieties and all your troubles and all your fears and cast them at the foot of a hill called Calvary because you can't change that. It stands in history. It's viewed as complete. You don't have to wonder about God's love for you. It's historical. God showed his love, demonstrated it by Christ dying. And this is for you, different for, different F-O-R. This time it's, it's the word huper. I, I don't want to commit a linguistic fallacy, but it's possible to translate this on behalf of you, in place of you. Oh, the power in prepositions. Do you suppose we have kind of an atonement model or theory even in the preposition? I don't know. I don't know. It's quite a verse, isn't it? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see why I say the love of God drove the death of God? So years ago, when we would go down to Granby, Missouri for our weekend ministry, I had four preparations in those days, a Sunday morning sermon, a Sunday morning Bible school lesson, a youth group lesson, and a Sunday evening adult lesson. Four preps each weekend. I was just taking everything from class and just stealing it and just dumping it there. And uh, one week I gave a devotion, you know, from John 6 about the Lord's Supper. Learned from Brother Wilson that week it had nothing to do with that. So went back and apologized the next week. But anyway, during the youth group lesson, sometimes we'd sing. And we'd sing this. When we were sinners, Jesus came took upon himself our blame, willing to bear our sin and shame. He died for us. He died for us. The Son of God became a man, fulfilling God's eternal plan, conceived before the world began. He died for us. He died for us. There once stood a wall, deep and wide, strong and tall. There, there it stood, built of all our unholiness. But this man, by his blood, broke that wall and loosed the flood of the mercies of God to mankind. And now God offers to each one a priceless pardon for what we've done because of Jesus, his own son, who died for us. He died for us. Well, you just take that pebble and you just start spreading out a little bit. And when you get into Romans and the Pauline literature and the other epistles and even the book of Revelation, you'll see that there are certain propositional statements and I guess you'd say a kaleidoscope of words. <laughs> I was listening to N.T. Wright this last summer in a podcast and he's right when he says words mean things. Words mean things. So you have this kaleidoscope. I guess that's why I'm a bit always eclectic when it comes to the atonement. I think some models are more telling than others, but it doesn't matter. You've got all these words, even in the immediate context of Romans 5, 8, you've got words like justified, gain access, reconciliation. You back up into chapter 3, it doesn't get any better than 3, 21 to 26. And you get words like redemption, propitiation. Wow. 
And you just start spreading out into the epistles. And you get this kaleidoscope of words because it seems to me that the writers of the New Testament letters and our founding dean, Brother Wilson, said that the letters, 21 of your 27 books, the letters are teaching the church how to live out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The letters are doctrinal commentaries on the life of Jesus. So they're trying to explain to the church what all this means. And they'll use just the kaleidoscope of words to get at it a number of different ways. You get over to 1 Peter he bore in his body our sins on the tree. And don't forget to get to Revelation. In Revelation 5, in that wonderful worship scene, Jesus, the lion lamb, goes over and takes the scroll from the one who was seated on the throne, and it begins to pop those seals and reveal the will of God. And they sang it three times in Revelation 5. He was slain, he was slain, he was slain. Wow. And they sang about it. So, I grew up in the church. I went to church when I didn't even want to go to church. I went to church all the time. And those people over there are responsible. So I brought my hymnal. I never know why we sang verses 1, 2, and 4. I thought, three is the number of the Trinity. Is that a bad verse? Or we, why don't we ever sing verse three? You don't want to miss verse three because verse three sometimes really matters. Do you know number 67? Number 67. Chris DeWell, I'll try to get through this. But I remember hearing your daddy sing verse three. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You know number four? Yeah, you do. It's how great thou art. But don't miss verse three, because that's where the gospel is. You can walk through all the forest glades you want to, but it ain't going to save you. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, gladly. Read Hebrews 12. He bled and died to take away my soul. Then sings my soul. They sang about this stuff as they did their theology in the streets. That's what they did. You can see it in the epistles. and You keep spreading out. You'll get to the gospels. I had a former student one day in Mark class ask me a question. I knew he was trying to nail me. Sometimes we do know. Now, oftentimes, you can pull the wool over us old guys. But I was younger then. <laughs> and he said to me, now, he's a brilliant guy. He went on to get a PhD. He teaches at a sister institution. He's become an expert on Second Temple, Temple Judaism. But he said, do you think there's atonement models and theories in the Gospels? I knew what he was trying to do, that tricky rabbit. He was trying to push me. 
And I said, Tyler, oh, I didn't mean to be interesting. I said, um, <laughs> I said, now you stop this. I said, no, I don't think there are atonement models in the gospels because he doesn't die to the end of the story. But there are little glimpses. When you spread out from the propositions of the gospels, you get to the picture of the epistles, you get to the pictures of the gospels. And I said, maybe we all need to go down to Turkey Creek. It used to be down there. But it kind of stands as an umbrella over this campus. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom. Guess what the word is? Huper. In place of, in behalf of, you. Maybe some of the statements tell us something about, maybe just in the narrative of the Gospels, maybe there are these pictures. How about this one? How about this one? Abba, Afiemi, forgive them, send their sins away, for they know not what they do. How about this great eschatological statement? Today, you will be with me in paradise. How about this one? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you... Do you know what forsaken means? Desolate, left alone. You don't think there's an exchange between father and son there? And then the pastoral moments of behold thy mother, behold thy son. I, 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 thirst. And he only said that because he wanted to say it with a loud voice. Tetelestai. It stands finished. That's not something about the atonement. How about the, it's a quote from the little psalm in the Old Testament that's kind of the now I lay me down to sleep song. Abba, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I think in the Gospels you had little snippets, maybe not the propositions, maybe not the kaleidoscope of words that you have in the epistles, but, but you had little pictures. How about this one? The greatest story he ever told. A father had two sons. Buckle up, Pharisees. It never ends well for you when he starts this way. And the younger came to his father and said, I wish you were dead. Give me what's... And so the father... You don't think the dad died a little in that moment? He distributed his goods among them, and the boy gets in his Ferrari, goes to Vegas, finds repentance in a pig pen, comes back as he rehearses his speech. One of the greatest verses in your Bible, Luke 15, 20. But when he saw him, I can only assume it means the daddy was looking for him. Stayed on that front porch every day. When he saw him, he felt compassion for him, and he ran to him, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he said to the servants, bring the signet ring, bring the sandals, bring the robe, and bring Betsy. The definite article is in there. Bring the fattened calf. This is not just any fattened calf. This is the one we were saving for the 4th of July. This is Betsy. This is bring the fat calf. But you know what? You say, there's no atonement theory in the prodigal son. <laughs> well, let me ask this question. Did they start to party before the sacrifice of the calf? 
You don't start the party till there's been a sacrifice. Well, you keep spreading out, man, pretty soon you find your way to the Old Testament. How are we ever going to do that in just a minute or two? We'll just have to be selective. But you know the first time the word love appears in the Old Testament is Genesis 22. When we were in Jerusalem, we had these rings. Joe did these rings. We'll call him Joe because that's his name. But um, <laughs> it's, this, has got, this has got the masculine ending. Miss Carla has the feminine ending. First time the word love appears is Genesis 22. You don't find that interesting? The narrator, Genesis, says, now the Lord tested Abraham. God never did it. This was a test. That's all it was. Take thy son. You ready for this? Your only begotten son. That's the Greek word. Come to my office. One of the most precious gifts I own. That I will take. My kids are not getting this one. The Septuagint I have in my office was Wilbur Fields. He gave it to me. And you could pull that off and look at the Genesis. It's monogonase. It's the same word used in John 3, 16. Only begotten son. Hmm. My beloved son. The one I love. And, and use him as a burnt offering. And it just, as a father, I can't imagine what this would be like. Ver, the next verse says, And the next day, very early in the morning, Abraham saddled his donkey. He's going to do this. And they takes that boy... And they get within distance of Moriah. And Abraham says to the servants, you and the donkey stay here. I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship. You ready for the next line? And we, it's emphatic, we ourselves will come to you. And you think, wait a minute. If you're going to kill him, your grammar's bad. Unless we take literally what it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen 19, that Abraham received him back as an antitupas, type. Huh. First time the word love has appeared, there's something about a sacrifice. And as Tom Ewald would say at Lincoln Christian University, there would come another day with another father and another son, another hill. But that day there'd be no ram caught in the thicket. That day the son would die. You heard several verses earlier in our catena of scriptures read. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. The suffering servant's song. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of us all was laid on him. And by his stripes we are healed. It doesn't get any better than that. And you know when our friends, the Jews for Jesus, those guys, when they go witness to their other Jewish friends and they read Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, and then they just ask them right there on the street, kind of like a gospel track or social media, who do you think this is? And even non-believing Jewish people in our world will say, Yeshua. He's the only one that fits the bill. He's the only one that could be possibly described. See, if I die for you, no big fig. But if a willing victim, says Lewis, who has committed no treachery, he and die in your place. Hmm. Well, most preachers play movie clips in their sermons. You could put my knowledge of cinema in a thimble. I don't... I play clips of other sermons. So pray for me. Um, 
But I want to close with my friend Jeff Walling preaching at Cincinnati some years back at the North American Christian Convention. Some of you guys from Shepherd, Pastor Dudley, was the convention president that year. And Jeff is closing out his sermon. He tells about a lady named Joy who was a Satanist and needed to learn that Jesus loved her and died for her sins. Two snapshots and it's yours. Joy Craig showed up at church because her mother dragged her there. Joy was in one of those dresses that as a pastor you're saying, oh my goodness, hello, pleased to meet you. I mean, it just, it was inappropriate. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? And I just thought, wow, we, you know, did nobody give you the dress code? But she looked so angry. And Joy was all so tearful. And she sat down with me and her mother said, um, 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 could you talk to my daughter? She's, this is the first time she's been in a church in a long, long time. And she and her husband have had problems. That is the greatest understatement I may have ever heard. Joy's husband was in prison for a felony. She had just gotten out of prison because of that same charge. And it was because the Joy and her husband were Satanists. They had started a coven. They had taught people how to control demons. They were all the way deep. They played for the other team. And this gal is sitting in my church after church is over on a pew with me as everyone else is leaving the auditorium. And I realized I'm alone with her. I mean, there were other people in the lobby, but you know. And she's telling me the story. Oh, we were able to control demons and do this, and we could make them do this, and one time it did this. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm used to things like, I got to quit smoking. But this lady is sitting here, and she's been smoking a whole nother kind of thing. And she said, to be honest, I don't like Christians very much. And I said, well, I can understand that being your affiliation. Uh, uh, but I said, you know, why? And she said, well, I was growing up in churches where they always talked about hellfire and hellfire and hellfire. And I finally decided, well, I want to know about the guy that's running the fire. And, and she said, she, she literally had gotten into this through a turnoff from a hard-nosed, judgmental Christianity. And I said, well, then I probably only need to tell you one thing. God is in love with you. He loves you so much. He was willing to give his very son so that you could have life. And she said, are you serious? And I said, dead serious. You caught the line, didn't you? He's in love with you. Are you serious? Dead serious. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Jesus to Calvary did go. His love for mankind to show. What he did there brought hope from despair. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me.